Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 16, and we have come now to verse 16, and this is the final part of Christ's discourse to his disciples, the 11 who are left, before he prays his great prayer in John 17, and then is arrested. Divine compassion. There is no greater display of the affection that God has for his own than what has been seen here in Christ's discourse to these 11. Please remember that in John 17, what he has told these 11, he notes in his prayer that the same feeling and love are to be applied to all believers. So when we see this, we we can sense that Christ says this to us as well. In just maybe three hours or four from here, they will run away scared. They'll be scattered. There would be no way then to describe their grief and shock and fear and horror. The the worst of human emotions, all mixed up and carried to the highest part of a person's state of existence. That's what these disciples are going to experience. Christ knows this. He must go to the cross and he bypassed the cross. Where would I be? If you're in Christ, where would you be? As Paul wrote, we would of all men be most miserable. So then he must, only Christ can die for his own. He's God in the flesh. Nobody else has come forth like this from from God. And then thus to be offered on the cross, a, a, a sacrifice, a lamb, the lamb of God. The final preparation must be made, though what Christ is saying to his disciples as he has told them won't be completely understood until later after his resurrection and even after his ascension. So then Christ completes the discourse beginning in verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Therefore, some of his disciples said to one another, 
What is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. Their theology is still limited to the theology of Judaism. And they still would cling to the hope. Even as it's seen in Acts chapter one, they still would cling to the hope that Christ is about to establish the kingdom on earth. And they don't completely understand the triune God. And they cannot, the world could not understand it until Christ came and then died and rose again and was, and then ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. It could not be completely understood. And so Christ's death, his looming crucifixion, his death, burial, and then resurrection are necessary. And then his ascension and then his sending the Holy Spirit are all of these are necessary for his own finally to get the grasp of the greatness of God. The whole world in the Old Testament and even in the intertestament period has been prepared for this. Christ explains it a little while. You'll no longer see me a little while. You will see me. And what is he saying? Because I'm going to the Father. How does he do that? What's, what's this all about? Therefore, they were saying, this what he says a little while. We do not know what he's saying. Jesus knew. Now, we've seen this several times in John, but we've seen it in other gospels as well. The sovereign omniscience of God, knowing those who are around him, he knew. He knew their thoughts. Jesus knew that they were desiring to ask him. And he said to them, do you inquire among one another concerning this, that I said, a little while you will not see me, and again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be grieved, but your grief will turn to joy. Of course, in the immediate sense, this applies to the disciples as they would watch in horror as Christ is cruelly beaten and then crucified and then would experience the unspeakable joy of the great truth that he came forth from the grave he conquered death. In a, 
In immediate sense, this applies, of course, to these 11 disciples. But in a much broader sense, it applies to you and me as well. We suffer grief in this present state, in this present world. We are grieved in relationships. We are grieved in family relationships. We are grieved in work relationships. Every, every relationship, even the highest and most special relationships we can have with each other, ends in grief and death. And regardless of the height of our faith, the human side is still stricken with grief when we must say goodbye to a loved one. They have to say goodbye to Jesus. But Jesus tells them, as deep as your grief is, how so much higher your joy will be. And that's the hope we carry in our lives when we think of those who have gone before us, those to whom we've had to say goodbye in this life. It is a promise from Jesus, and he begins in the immediate sense of Christ's assuming his own death, the role of his death, and what it would mean for his disciples here and what his resurrection and his appearing to them again and finally his ascension will mean to them again after his crucifixion. You will be grieved. This is part of our lives in this present world. We're not in heaven. The kingdom has not been established physically in the world. We have the kingdom in our hearts, of course. But we're not enjoying in glorified bodies the kingdom yet to come and even beyond that, the new heaven and the new earth. Grief, we have grief. But we have this promise. Your grief will turn to joy. This great teaching for the church begins here with these 11. Christ knows what's about to happen to them. He understands because he knows what he's about to have to experience. And yet in all of this, he knows. I mean, all he has to do, Christ, of course, in his spirit, Inspired Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Zechariah, what, 9 through 12. He knew that it was prophesied that the Messiah would suffer. Daniel said he would be murdered, killed. Isaiah talked about his torment, his bruising. And what they would do to him. And Zechariah speaks of how he would, and, and Psalm 22, how he would be pierced. And he would hang ignominiously in front of a crowd who would make fun of him. 
Christ knows he's headed for this. He's just wee hours from it. But his concern is for these 11 divine compassion. You're going to be grieved, but it'll turn to joy. Then he gives them an illustration of what he's talking about. When the woman is giving birth, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she brings forth the child, she no longer remembers the tribulation on account of the joy that a man has been born into the world. Therefore, you also now indeed have grief. However, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Every one of us in the human experience here, all of us, me, you, everybody, experiences grief in various ways. The situations that we face in life, people disappoint us. Things happen. We struggle. We're treading through this life. But we have this, we have this promise from Christ that behind everything we face, the tribulation, the, the suffering, like a woman in childbirth, the pressure, the pain of all that we suffer, at the bottom of it all should be joy. Joy. That what we are experiencing in this life is not the fundamental foundation of who we are. Like that woman in childbirth, those of us who are in Christ especially, we're going to experience grief. We are attacked by the world whether we realize it or not. Our children are attacked. And when our children are attacked, they're attacked at school. They are attacked in their relationships. They are attacked online. They are attacked on television, in the music. They're attacked everywhere. And when we consider these things, we suffer as well and we grieve as well. And we face the tribulations and the pressures of life today. Just going from day to day and week to week. We, we suffer these things. We understand in all of this is a lesson that all of that's going to be turned into joy. It's just sort of a dressing room for heaven. This life, the teaching here starts with Christ and his 11. And it's going to go beyond just this because we know what uh, traditional history says about these 11 and the other one that will be added in the book of Acts to, take, to make 12 again. They suffer. They die horrible deaths. They are rejected. People 
mistreat them in the worst kind of ways. We can look at Hebrews 11 and we can see that the same treatment came to the prophets of old. Do you know what the writer to the Hebrews says about such servants of God, the people of God who suffer so horrifically? The writer of the Hebrews says the world is not worthy of them. Think about that. We're in the world and the world must necessarily hate us. And Christ and those who are in Christ and the word of Christ. And it's grievous. But we're going to see that we have something that the world doesn't have. You're going to grieve, but I'll see you again. Your heart will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, I want you to listen, this is a tremendous, that day is the day where we are right now. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Let me tell you why he says this. He is personally, visibly, physically present with his disciples, these 11. He's, he's right there with them. They could reach out and touch him. They could embrace him. He is speaking verbally and they're listening directly. They can watch him as he speaks with his lips and they process this in their ears and into their minds. They are right there. God Almighty in the person of God the Son is right there with them. So if they want to ask something of him, they ask him directly. They cannot at this point understand what it's like to ask something. But he's teaching them. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. I won't be here physically. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you may ask the Father in my name, he will give you. All right, for these three years, Christ would withdraw from the disciples and he would go and pray to the Father. Christ would come back and he would say, this is my father's will. My father's will is thus and so. And the will of the father, what came from the father to these disciples came through the son in that day physically. But Christ says here in that day, you won't ask me directly. I'm going to give you some good news. Just like I've been going to the father, you will go to the father. And you will go in my name. I'm praying. In the same sense that Christ prayed. Which is namely directly to the father. But I can only approach the father. In the name of Christ. And I understand this. I understand that no one can go to the father but through Christ. No one. But now I have this wonderful assurance. I can pray directly to the Father in the name of Jesus. It opens up the pathway to the throne 
of grace. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you may ask the Father in my name, he'll give you. Until now, this is on the evening. This is now early Friday morning. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Christ goes to the cross. While he's on the cross, the veil of the temple is torn in half. There's an earthquake that shakes everything, including the temple. And now, today, you and I can pray. There doesn't have to be a temple. There doesn't have to be a visible priest. Our high priest is Christ. Hebrews chapters, what, 7 through 10? Christ has ascended. He has become my high priest. He's my intercessor. He pleads my case. He keeps me saved as my high priest in heaven. And I pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. And it opens up the whole place for me. It opens up the entire relationship. I am with God in prayer. That's what he says. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That word means completely filled out and full. Christ makes the promise to the 11 that transfers, of course, to us. He goes away, the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of Christ. Christ is with us by his Holy Spirit. For those of us who are in Christ, who are believers, he lives in our hearts, he lives with us. He goes with us everywhere we go. He hears what we hear, he sees what we see. He knows what we do. He is with us. He tenderly rebukes us from time to time. He teaches us. He even makes our prayers right when our prayers go up into heaven. He takes care of it. He is our high priest. And so our joy is full because just like he was physically with those 11 he is spiritually with me every day and every night. He is always with me. And I'll tell you, surely this makes our joy complete, full, filled to as far as it can be. These things I have spoken to you in allegories, in figurative speech, an hour is coming when I will speak to you no more in allegories, but I will report to you plainly concerning the Father. 
In that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will implore the Father for you. Do you know why? Because we will go directly to the Father in the name of Jesus. That's why. These 11 will have a difficulty understanding that. They, they continue to carry with them the, the theological concept and persuasion of the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and all that kind of thing. And that the only way that the presence of God could be approached was in some sort of ritualistic way through a priesthood and, and a sacrifice and all of that. Christ takes all of that to himself and he puts it away. Christ is all of that. It is all just to teach us of Christ. So now Christ says, I'll tell you, you won't need me to implore the Father for you. I'm telling you plainly, you will go to the Father in my name. And you ask, and he'll give it. In my, I mean, this is just like Jesus saying, you know how I've gone onto the mountaintops and prayed to the Father for the will of the Father and to be, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit sent by the Father that I might do the Father's will. Now this is you in the sense of prayer, praying to the Father, directly to the Father. No need for the temple anymore. No need for a priesthood anymore. Even with Christ ascending physically into heaven and there taking the place of our high priest and sending his spirit, no need of the physical presence of Christ anymore. He is with us by his Holy Spirit. Now this is something that these 11 won't really understand until after the day of Pentecost. Now we get to the really beautiful part. It's all beautiful. For the Father himself loves you. We think of, okay, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so many times we think of the Father as, I don't know, the Wizard of Oz or something. We just, we just can't go there. Ooh, not, not in the presence of the Father. Let me tell you, the Father loves you if you're in Christ. Do you know why the Father loves you? Because you have loved Jesus and have believed that Jesus came forth from God. This has warmed and opened up the familial affection of God. You see, there's a, there's a word here. We know about agape. We know about all. But look at this. This is up there in the Greek. This is the other word. Philae. Philae. Now, that's not a mignon. This is, <laughs> this is a Greek word that means Deep personal family affection. Phileo, it comes from Phileo. Philadelphia, Adelphos brother, Philate, brotherly love. Christ brings it right to their hearts. 
And here's what he says to us. You love your family. You know, he says, he says in another part of the scripture, you can call him Abba, Father, Papa, Father. You just call him that. That's who he is to you. He's your Papa. He's your Daddy. Your Father. His love. Jesus says, for the Father himself loves you. And for you to identify with this love, how strong is your love for your children, your parents, your husband, your wife, the people who are the closest to you on planet Earth? This is not an agape love. This is a phileo. This is a phile. This is a this is a family affection. And so Christ uses this word. And being, being the love from the Father makes it perfect affection. Now, those of us who especially have children, you love them with all your heart. You do anything for them. You even will overlook their transgressions. You may have to punish them from time to time, but you don't throw them away. You love them too much. So Jesus says, this is the way the Father loves you. The Father himself. I love the emphasis in the language. It starts with himself. Himself, the Father. The Father himself. Affectionately. With perfect affection. The affection of God. Loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. See, this is where we live. This is, there's that word up there, the word. It's cosmon. It comes from cosmos. Tongue cosmon. It's in the neuter there. It means, it, it means the evil system. The fallen system of the present existence. Right down from the purity and perfection of heaven, the Son came forth from the Father. He came into the world. But He's not going to stay here. I leave the world again and go to the Father. So you pray to the Father, you're praying where Christ is, and you're praying being saved, having the Spirit of Christ. You're praying in the Spirit of Christ, in the presence of Christ, with the presence of Christ, according to the will of the Father. And the Holy Spirit interprets that and makes it all right. But I'll leave the world. I, see, we'll see in a minute that he's, he finishes in the world what he came to do. Now, his disciples said, wow, this is, this is different. Behold, you speak now in openness. And you're not speaking figuratively. And now we know that you know all things. You are truth. And you have no need that anyone should question you. 
<laughs> That's rich. Never question God. It's absolute truth. He has no need. You don't have to debate with God. People always trying to debate with God. You're going to debate the word and all this kind of thing. That's stupid. Let me tell you. You won't win that argument. Some infinitely glorious day. On one side or the other of the great white throne. You will stand in his presence. And how foolish you will feel. If you ever thought yourself high enough to debate with God. So. You don't have any need. This doesn't mean anything to you that people should question. You are truth. And in this, we believe. You came forth from God. Boy, that's a long way. They have come a long way in those three years. This is the son of God. This is the presence of God physically. And he is right there in front of them. Your absolute truth and we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, now do you believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has come when you will be scattered. Ooh, he's about to get into that prayer. And he's about to say in that next chapter, the hour has come. He's not sweating it. He is compassionately concerned about his own. He knows how this is going to end. He's in charge of it. The hour has come. You're going to be scattered each to his own place. And you'll leave me alone. And I'll be alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've spoken these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In peace, in Christ, in peace. In the world. You have tribulation. That's a strong word, tribulation. You have flipsin, flipsin, flipsin. Pressure, unspeakable pressure and pain, distress. That's what we have in the world. But then Christ gives them a command because this is in the imperative. But take courage. Be bold. I have overcome the world. I did it for you. If we're in Christ, in Christ we have overcome the world. He is he is victorious. Over the world. What's the worst thing that the world can do to you? Kill you? Well, suppose you just die laughing. 
laughing at death. You're going to get right back up. Why? Because Romans 8 says, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead shall so raise us from the dead as well. In Christ, we're already raised from the dead. In Christ, the world is already defeated. In Christ, the tribulation has already been put away. In Christ, very difficult for them to understand this until after his resurrection. Then he'll teach them for 40 days and open their minds to the scriptures, which happened to have been the Old Testament then. He already armed them with the promise that the Holy Spirit will come and lead them into the thoughts and memory that they're going to need to give us the rest of the scriptures, the New Testament. He has overcome the world. The evil system cannot conquer the people of God. That's why they hate us so much. They hate us. They pass their laws. They institute their policies. They do everything that they can do to trouble the elect of God. But our great king has overcome the world. And his kingdom and the kingdom to which we belong, not of this world, not of this world. Something far greater than this. So what do I take away from this? First of all, the divine compassion that God has for his people. That in Christ, I can pray directly to the Father, just like Jesus did. I can pray directly to the Father in the name of Jesus Divine compassion because he loves us. You know, that back, back over in that other slide where it said the Father loves us, it's in the present active. What it means is it's, been all, it's always been that way. It won't ever stop. He does it personally. He applies it himself and he never quits applying that love. There's nothing. According to that very form of that word, there is nothing that will ever take away the love of God from those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8 at the very end of the chapter. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves us because we loved Christ. Oh, how the Father loves the Son. And the father would say, these are those to whom I have given to you. You have redeemed them. You love them and I love them. Divine compassion. And joy of life. This world should never be allowed to rob, our, uh, to rob us of our joy in Christ. My heart is broken. Go to the Father in the name of Jesus.
Things are going wrong. Go to the Father in the name of Jesus. I'm having difficulty. Go to the Father in the name of Jesus. I'm sick. Go to the Father in the name of Jesus who loves you in the perfect way that we imperfectly love our family. Divine compassion, abundant joy that the world cannot understand. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. We're taught in the scripture. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Call on him to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a moment we'll be dismissed from this present meeting room. As you exit the doors, you will see deacons and their wives standing in the doorways of a couple of rooms just as you exit. If you would come to Christ today, they are there ready to pray with you. If you are a Christian and you are led to come into the body of Christ here at Shiloh, they're ready to pray with you. And we take care of all the details of church membership if that's what God wants in your life. They're there for you as you exit. But for right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, prayerfully, let's stand all over this room and let's pray.